Hello, my name is Adam Eason and welcome to episode 18 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a festive cross-Atlantic treat of a show lined up for you today. The festive season is properly upon us and this will be our final episode of Hypnosis Weekly until the new year. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with the hypnotherapist, hypnosis trainer, stage hypnotist, and multifaceted man that is Dr. Mike Mandel. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured, offering up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest, Dr. Mike Mandel, this week, I shall be exploring his approach to hypnosis and therapy in general. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass, a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and stance, but are all incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle.com. You can add your thoughts, comments, make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So, first of all today is this week's interview. I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Dr. Mike Mandel. I'm always especially pleased to welcome guests to the show who have had an enduring career. Mike Mandel has not just had an enduring career, it is an incredibly varied one that sees him draw upon a very wide range of life experiences when employing hypnosis in his work. For that reason, I chose not to have a specific topic for our discussion this week and instead explore Mike's approach, which we'll be sharing later on. I'm always of the opinion that if someone has worked for a number of years in this field, it demonstrates that he must have done something well along the way. You know, getting results with therapy clients means referred business, which sustains a therapy practice, for example. Having happy graduates and students means that a training school thrives and develops a good reputation that underpins a a business and so on and so on. Therefore, I was particularly impressed with Mike before I'd even had a chance to speak to him. Another factor I find really becoming is the notable way that some of my guests on this podcast just seem to love our field, love this field. It feels to me like we get to celebrate it together in these podcasts, and this is something that I in turn love sharing with you, our listeners. It seems to me incredibly apt, therefore, that our last show of 2014 will be with Dr. Mike Mandel, because his energy, enthusiasm, and almost lust-like passion for this field, this hypnosis field, is just a joy to be around, I must say. I think you're going to love what he readily shares. Get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, and enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I am delighted to have with me the one and the only Dr. Mike Mandel. Mike, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you, Adam. Great to be here. Um, Now then, let's roll our sleeves up. Let's get stuck straight in. 
tell us then, how did you get into this field? How did you get into the field of hypnosis? Can you tell us some of your background and how you've arrived at this place where you are now, these lofty heights? <laughs> lofty heights, I don't know about that, but I got here by having hypnosis thrust upon me, as it were. When I was growing up in Toronto, having emigrated from England with my family, because you don't typically emigrate on your own <laughs> when you're a kid, um, growing up in Toronto, and it was 1965, and um, my father had been very concerned because in Britain at the time there were only two television channels. It was BBC and there was ITV, and that was yeah. it. And I think television went off the air at about 6 p.m. or something. <laughs> we moved to Toronto, and all of a sudden you got all these amazing TV stations. You've got Buffalo, New York as well, all coming across the border. And I was obsessed with television, especially commercials, because we didn't have any adverts mm. in, Canada, in England when I was growing up. So my mom and dad said I would run back into the room to see the adverts and then back out again. My dad said, okay, this, this television trend is, is alarming. He said, I want you to read more. So he, he took me to a bookstore and said, any book you want, you can have. And I saw a hardcover book by Walter B. Gibson mm. called The Key to Hypnotism and bought that. And well, he bought it for me and I took it home and learned the contents. And that moment in 1965 created a, an almost 50 year love affair with hypnosis. Wow. Lovely. Lovely. And so, and so uh, how did the journey then proceed? Well, in search of subjects, of course, I can yeah. only find friends when you're 12, you're not really that good at hypnotizing adults because there isn't much credibility, mm. no prestige factor. But my neighbors above the animal hospital next door, their father was a veterinary technician, Max mm. and Wayne Gibbs. I went over and took my book and a plastic watch because you've got to have a watch to swing. <laughs> and I said, can I hypnotize you? And they don't know what I'm talking about. They're little kids. They go, yeah, sure. So I sit them down at this picnic table and I do the um, induction for difficult subjects. Back in those days, I just presupposed everyone was a difficult subject to be on the safe side. And did this, uh, you know, eye fixation induction with a lot of um, eyes opening and closing and yeah. you know, inter intermittent instructions and so on. Well, Max is just giggling through the whole thing. But Wayne, the older brother, who was probably about 10, he went into a trance really quickly. And I thought he was kidding. Mm. And so I made his hand cataleptic, created glove anesthesia, and proceeded to stick a safety pin in his fingertip. And he couldn't feel it. <laughs> and his parents weren't really thrilled with the whole thing. I was trying to hypnotize him again. But the, the amazing thing is, Adam, I was speaking at, I was doing a hypnosis show about five years ago in mm. Picton, Ontario. It's in a wine area, very nice, in the theater there. And before I went, I somehow, I can't remember how we reconnected, I found Wayne Gibbs. Oh, wow. We had not talked in 45 years. Mm. And he said, I remember you used to hypnotize me, stick pins in my fingers. He said, what are you doing these days for a living? And I said, well, it's funny you should ask. He said, technically patient zero. And so he came out to the event and I told my story and I said, and Wayne is here tonight. And he stood up and everybody went nuts and it, it just it treated them like a rock star. But right. that was the start. That's what launched me into the whole thing. And then it's been a, a, a varied and fascinating journey since then from, you know, hypnodontics and forensic hypnosis and police training and just about everything. Mm. I absolutely love the field. I find it fascinating. Mm. Um, um, and and we're gonna we're gonna do our do our best to explore your approach on the on the therapeutic side of things. So uh, sure. as much as I, I really want to ask you stuff about that straight away, tell yeah. me a little bit about you know how you how you go about explaining hypnosis to your clients or to the people that, that appear in your your, your shows um you know do, do you have a, a working definition of it and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you arrived at that definition and, and, and explanation well that's that's a, a damn good question because it, it i'm still in a state of flux over as to what this whole thing is i mean yeah. i think anybody who says they really can categorically say what hypnosis is is probably mistaken yeah um I, I went to the uh, um, psychological American Psychological Association conference. They had a symposium on hypnosis in Toronto. My friend, Dr. Arthur Perlini, is professor of psychology at Algoma University. He's also the dean there. Mm. And he got me in. I wasn't supposed to be there. And I went and attended this to hear the academics talk about it. And I said, well, what, what will they actually be doing? He said, well, they won't do any hypnosis. I said, what are you talking about? It's a hypnosis conference. He said, well, it might not work. They won't take a chance. So mm. I said, you're kidding. So they talked it to death. And there were a lot of definitions, but here's the one I loved, the one they used. Mm. I don't agree with it, but it's great. He said, hypnosis, it's not what you think it is. It's what you think it is. <laughs> it's, it's, 
wonderfully ambiguous. <laughs> I have narrowed it, Adam, having looked at Raphael Rhodes' psychic relative exclusion and bihemispheric function and the muting mm. of the left hemisphere. All of these things increase suggestibility. Erickson said no. He said it only increases the potential for increased suggestibility. You know, this relaxed state stuff, which, of course, you get lying on a beach or in a hot tub. Finally, I've, I've come up with this one. Hypnosis is a state maintained by a set of processes. It's, you know, is it a state or is it a process? The answer is yes. It's both. It's mm. a state, and as long as we keep doing these processes, we keep this state where we are then able to access more resources. Or it's, it's a particularly powerful form of communication. I think of it more as a communication, or as Bandler would say, as an amplifier than mm. as anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, uh, really interesting. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, really interesting. And, and I think you know, even a lot of people, um, a lot of people that I encounter look and seek clarity from academics or scholars even or researchers and, and, and even they don't agree universally on on a definition so you know it's it, it is a tough a tough one to answer but it's I, like I, I grab smoke <laughs> yeah 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 um um and and so i mean you've kind of touched upon a couple of people here and there um what Tell us about some of your major influences. You know, I mean, over those years, um, because that, that's a lot of years to be working in this field. You know, I, I rarely encounter people with, with that amount of years under their belt in this field um, um, and, and to have continued thriving as well. You know, so tell us a little bit about your own influences. And, and are there any kind of books and authors that have taught you Gosh, more? Yes. Um, yes. Um, some of the teachers that have been most influential upon you throughout the years. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why they were so influential to you. Absolutely. And by the way, uh, next month marks 40 years of doing this full time. So <laughs> wow. January, January 29th, 1975, I left my job as a telephone operator in Toronto yeah. to be a full time hypnotist. <laughs> yeah, so, wow. And, and you know, one of the things one of the things I say on here as well um, is is very often is that, you know, if, if you want to seek out the top people, look at longevity of career, because you, you cannot remain in this career if you don't achieve and if you don't do well and if you don't deliver results and everything else. So, um, you know, I think that, that just the longevity of your own career is testament to, to what you do and how you do it. Um, um, but, yeah, tell us about your influences. Well, let's say Walter Gibson, first of all, because yeah. he was the, the magician who wrote The Key to Hypnotism. And without that book, I never would have started. In fact, when I teach Architecture of Hypnosis in Toronto, I still teach them that induction that I got from Walter Gibson in 1965. It's a useful one. That, yeah. you know, we're, we're back to the test of the model is its usefulness. Another yeah. brilliant teacher was my grade six public school teacher, Donald Thane, who has since, long since passed away. And he was the most engaging teacher I've ever had in my life, save one who we'll get to. Uh, Donald Thane, is, he's the man who got me addicted to learning. Mm. He just created a class full of autodidacts. He made everyone in the class fascinated with learning. And he made every day of school an absolute joy and a treasure. And I'm forever grateful to that man. He had um, just a way of pushing those buttons. Yeah. Another great influence would be Larry Nims, who created Be Set Free Fast. When I went and studied with Larry in California, that was we were part of the very first certification of Be Set Free Fast, and two friends of mine and I were the first Canadians certified in it. And Larry gave me a different way of expanding my model, working with the unconscious mind. And so he was a huge influence, apart from being a wonderful man. Mm. Um, Derek Bomber, tremendous influence, another Brit, a Cambridge linguist, and he was the trainer-trainer for NLP Canada years ago. Mm. It's since changed hands and is defunct as the original organization. But Derek was the man I most considered to be my mentor. I mean, he would think nothing of giving me a clip across the side of the head. Yeah. <laughs> this, is when I was, this is when I was in my 40s. <laughs> say, no, you idiot. I mean, he was terrific, but he was great. And, and to this day, I still do one of the things he said. When I get stuck and I realize I'm doing the same thing, over and over, I look over my left shoulder and I see Derek sitting there on his NLP training stool, grinning and laughing and yelling, do something else, you idiot. <laughs> so he's been a great influence. And the best teacher I've ever had has got to be John Grinder, co-founder of NLP. Yeah. Um, John gave me some of the best stuff. I was blessed to hang out with him and go for lunch with him and dinner with him. And he poured stuff into my mind. And I have modeled much, if not most, of my teaching style from him. Mm. And he's an absolutely phenomenal teacher. But then there's the authors, Adam. I mean, yeah. Erickson. Yeah. You, know, how can, you cannot talk about hypnosis without mentioning Erickson. 
and his collected papers to me are the, some of the most valuable and fascinating reading imaginable. Mm. And then people like Robert Anton Wilson, who pushed the boundaries of what my model of the world was, and playing his quarter game absolutely transformed my life, where you focus on you're going to find a quarter on the ground, which is, of course, 25-cent piece here in Canada or the U.S., and you focus on it intently, and you wait to see how quickly you find one. And it, it's scary how it happens, because <laughs> it always appears to have been placed there for you to find by some little elf or something. So he's another tremendous influence as to expanding what's possible. I'm mm. an empirical rationalist. I, I think you should be able to make experiments for most things. However, there is no way of designing an experiment to determine that empirical rationality is the way to go. So who knows? Mm, mm. Ah, you know, I mean, so much there. Um, um, one of the things, you know, I, I love the way that you describe the people that you're quite clearly fond of. Um, um, your, 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 your school teacher that you um, that you spoke that, that you said kind of imbibed this um, this th this love of learning. What 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 was it? What was it about that teacher that um, um, that, that did that? He, Donald Thane found a way of engaging our imagination. For example, mm. I thought of this one this morning. Uh, when he wanted us to write a short story, instead of saying, okay, everybody write a short story about something or other, what he did was he put on this military music um, pipes and drums kind of thing, yeah. handed out sheets of parchment paper and gave everybody fountain pens and quill pens. And we had to write as though we were writing from you know, the 1700s. And then he came around and splashed red ink on each page and he took them all from us and put them in the oven in his house and baked them so they all looked aged. And we tr it just made it so fascinating because we knew he was going to do this. And we were writing this diary entry from someone in the past, you know, and the, we we're under attack at that moment or something. And it, was, it brought a, a depth of imagination to everything that we did. He was mm. just amazing at that. Yeah, yeah, I, and and you know, I, I talk often myself about th this idea of inspiring the imagination. That's really lovely to hear, and so um, I'm, I'm such an enjoyable. I mean, heck, you explaining that then was stimulating my imagination. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Um, yeah, I love that. So, tell me a little bit then. Um, you know, with regards to um, um, some of the applications. I mean, you, you've worked with a lot of people over the years. What have been some of the more a impressive applications or some of the more impressive sort of hypnotic phenomena or things that you've directly witnessed or encountered? One of the funniest ones to me is just how quickly you can... I teach my master students to intersect with people, which is the antithesis of going into a session with a formula. For example, if we've had three great cures of phobias, you know, spider phobias, and we've had a method that works, the temptation is to go in and use the same method again. Mm. But I really agree with Roy Hunter that we have to be client-centered. We have to interact with the human being in front of us and with their beliefs and perceptual filters and so on, rather than going in with a plan. And I was walking out of a college in northern Ontario a number of years ago. I'd done a hypnosis lecture there. And a young man started walking out with me, and it was a very long hallway. So this is um, quite a bit north in the great boreal forests. Yeah. And as I'm wandering down this hallway, he said, hey, can you cure headaches with hypnosis? I said, I don't know. Have you got one? He said, yeah. I said, where is it? He said, oh, it's on the left side of my head here. I said, and we're still walking to the door. And I said, what color is it? He said, it doesn't have a color. It's a headache. I said, well, if it did have a color, what would it be? He said, hmm, sort of a greenish, purpley brown. I said, how does that make you feel? He said, terrible. I said, okay, take that color out of your head and change it. He said, what to? I said, I don't know, try a pale blue. He said, okay. I said, now put it back in. And we're still walking. We're just near the door. And he said, my headache's gone. My headache's gone. <laughs> and he turned to his friend. He said, this guy just got rid of my headache. I was so tempted to leave a silver bullet, you know, and just ride away. <laughs> said, I mean, when we intersect someone as a human, as another person with issues and um, beliefs and so on, there's, there's ways of getting in. It seems almost like our communication field suddenly envelops them. The example I give to my students is, you know, two soap bubbles in a sink and how they can pop together and become one larger one. Mm. And holding on to that metaphor enables us to intersect people. I, I was going to Boston to do a keynote last month, I guess. Mm. On the plane, there was a woman in her 70s from Ireland. And I had been to Ireland for the first time a few years ago, absolutely fell in love with the place, wanted to hand in my English citizen, you know, nationality, become Irish forever. And we got talking and she was going back to Boston for the first time since her husband had died three years ago and was had some sort of nervousness about the experience and if it was going to fire off all these bad anchors. And as we were talking, I intersected her 
and she began to go into trance. Mm. And she, her blink reflex absolutely stopped, sitting on a plane, staring at me. And I gave her all these embedded commands and suggestions on how wonderful she was going to feel when this brought closure, wonderful closure, to so many areas of her life. And <laughs> I never heard from her again, but Adam, I do not have any doubt that that woman had a phenomenal experience in Boston because yeah. she was intersected with this hypnotic loop. And that's some of the artistry that I've been exploring for about the last three or four years. Mm, mm. I, I mean, I find that incredibly compelling. Again, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about a little bit later on, um, um, that, that, that this, this relationship with the artistry and this application of the artistry, really interesting stuff. Um, um, now... This, I, I think this question is slightly different for you than a lot of the people I've had on so far because of because you've been in this career um, and in this field for 40 years. Um, now, if you could go back to when you then started out, when you started out as a hypnosis professional and, and knowing what it is that you know now um, um, with, with, this, with all this knowledge, would you do anything differently? And if so, what? And, and is there any advice that the person you are today would, would either give the younger you or would it extend advice to hypnotherapists of today that are starting out or perhaps looking to, to, to develop themselves slightly more? Oh, absolutely. The only regret I have, Adam, is that mm. I didn't start three years earlier. <laughs> you know, I, that I went and had a, a job as a telephone operator for three years first. Yeah. And I wish I had that three years just spent mm. in hypnosis. And the only advice I would give to the younger me or to the new people in the field is be prepared to edit your model as you go because it will go through a phenomenal number of shifts. And I look back at what I used to think of hypnosis, I hardly even seem like the same person. Mm. I used to have very much a cause effect model. Yeah. Rather than a, a hypnotic loop, which, yeah. which is a much more useful model for me, what Stephen Gilligan calls the cooperation principle, mm. where we are in that communication um, feedback with another human being and by doing that we can do consummate work very very easily and the amazing thing is the bad subjects seem to disappear mm. I don't know when I last had a bad subject not in probably not in 20 years that's that's really interesting I mean the, 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 you refer to that you know I used to have a cause effect model which which I which I still encounter people you know kind of working along those lines you know and, and it and it creates a certain degree of passivity in my experience where people kind of expect something to to happen to them as opposed yes. to as opposed to be engaged in the process in some way um, Absolutely. yes um, that's so bang on passivity and, and the idea that hypnotist does something and subject goes into trance. And when I was doing therapy full time in the 90s, I used to say to sub, they say, well, I don't think you can hypnotize me. I'd say, I can't. What? Yeah. I can't hypnotize you. We have to work together. I don't go back to the all hypnosis is self-hypnosis because I think if human givens theory is correct, and they may be, and if PGO spikes are a means of getting to the unconscious quickly, there's, there's ways of getting in that aren't self-hypnosis. say a lot of hypnosis is self-hypnosis, but I would say to the client, you're the one who has to go into the trance. I will show you how. And if you do what I say and follow it exactly, it'll work 100% of the time because I do this flawlessly because I've done it a billion times. Yeah. And when they recognize that it's their responsibility to actually respond rather than to wait for something to happen, then the bad subjects do disappear. Mm, mm. I, I find that fascinating. And for, for people listening, um, um, go, go rewind and listen back to, to some of that stuff, because there's some there's some real gold in there, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, um, some really important, th some really important points that you make. Um, um, well, one of the other things I would just say, um, Michael, or that I would just ask you, actually, is kind of popped into my head um I, I mean you talk about um you know that this depth of experience that you have and, and so on and i'm guessing that that virtually everybody that comes to see you these days is coming to see you as a result of you know your exceptional reputation do you think that that helps do you think that that creates hypnotic effect and that absolutely. that influences the people that you work with absolutely it does um absolutely adam in fact you know we're back to the royal touch Mm. You know, the, the king has this ability to cure scrofula or whatever the disease of the day is if yeah. one can only fight through all the um, barriers and so on and jump through enough hoops and get to see the king and he can lay his hands on you because he is the king of France, Germany, whatever, Britain through divine decree. He has this power of God to cure you. Absolutely, that's the case. And I, I, I play on that on purpose as well because 
when we teach people, we teach at the University of Toronto. Now, we are not the University of Toronto. We, we don't pretend to be. We rent really great classrooms at St. Michael's College. And the reason we teach there is because then all of our students studied at the University of Toronto. And it gives them a greater credibility in their own mind as well, a greater congruence rather than studying in you know, a hotel ballroom or something. Yeah, They're in a place of learning and it, it builds the whole environment around them. And that certainly does smooth the way. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. So I find that interesting. Um, um, again, this, this um, um, I think, you know, it, it's worthwhile that, that, that people leverage what they've got and, and, and make the most of it. But I love this idea that, um, because a lot of people um, say to me, you know, they watch some of the, the, the better known hypnotists on YouTube or, or on, on, on video products that they've seen and said, well, you know, everybody in that classroom or everybody in this lecture theatre is going to respond that way because they feel a certain way about that teacher, about that individual. And my comeback is always, well, well, you know what? They did. They weren't born at that level. They had to start working out. And I mean, yeah. you know, y yourself, you know, you had, you had 40 years and you've worked on stage shows and, and been on TV and done a wide range of stuff in order to climb your way to that area where people have that perception of you. And uh, have been, there's been the crash and burns en route, make no mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really have. I recall the first year I started, I was at a high school in southern Ontario, Palmerston District High School, still remember, and I had created my own induction sets back then, Adam, that were basically, I wasn't doing an induction. What I was doing was I was relying on Andre Weizenhofer's heteroaction. I was doing progressive testing, continuous testing, and getting hypnosis by default. Mm. So heteroaction was kicking in every time they were passing one of these tests, the likelihood they would pass the next one would also increase. And then I would just go right into hypnotic phenomena and get it. And I had not yet determined what was essential and what was the window dressing, what was the, the theatrics. And consequently, that night in Palmerston in 1975, I remember that I did the just a hand clasp, the very first thing, hands locked together, simplest possible hypnotic uh, suggestibility test, so-called. Mm -hmm. And 30 people out of 30 people took their hands apart and just looked at me like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, the remaining part of the evening is a horrific blank, and I, I don't go messing about there with whatever's repressed. But yeah, I had, I had the worst crash and burns imaginable. And, and to the young guys and young women starting out with this, be prepared to fail. You know, be pre prepared to fail gloriously. Don't anticipate it, <laughs> no. but expect it will happen because we are humans. We're not robots. You're going to get certain circumstances when things will not work. Yeah. And use that as an enormous learning experience so it never happens again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very useful. Very useful. Um, tell me, Mike, what are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on evidence-based approaches to hypnosis? Well, the question is, how do you do it? You know, it's... Mm. It, it's always one of those things, you know, the, the academic side of it. How do we test this sort of thing? I mean, there's so many variables. We're setting up double, double blind studies and all sorts of things. The example um, that came to mind recently was, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the nocebo effect. So the opposite of the placebo effect. Yeah. Well, how can we test it? We can't, do we deliberately give people hydrogen you know, cyanide or something and then half the control group doesn't get it and we see if any of the ones who didn't get it get really sick? Because yeah. we're <laughs> willfully doing harm in that case. So I think there's constraints around it, although I'm... I may struggle to get that one beyond yeah, ethics committees. Right, <laughs> I think so. And I'm huge on scientific hypnosis. I, I think it, it can get a little too woo-woo sometimes, although there's still things that happen that freak me out that I cannot explain. Mm. Um, but um, I, I'm a big believer in the science behind it. But because we're dealing with something so damnably ethereal to begin with, it's really hard to design tests that with large numbers that are going to have any real meaning. Yeah, yeah. And, I, 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 and to, to, to extrapolate um, um, the hypnosis effect is something that typically has been very difficult throughout very hypnosis difficult. research. You know, how do you show that this wasn't this wasn't just suggestion, for example? Yeah. You know, right. um, um, that, that that someone's not just responding to suggestion. Compa or social compliance. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, you know, th th there are a number of things um, that, that that I think you know researchers in the past have really struggled with it with with in order to really isolate hypnosis with with, with a few exceptions along the way so um, it's interesting that you say that um my I, 
I could just ask you about you and stuff and and so on for until the cows came home. Um, um, but but we're we're getting to that time where with with that interview, we're going to hear some more from you later. But just where can people go to learn more about your work, to learn more about you and your approach to hypnosis and so on? Well, uh, go to MikeMandelHypnosis.com, and Mandel is M-A-N-D-E-L. Yeah. So MikeMandelHypnosis.com. If you want to see about the trainings and so on we have, you can do MikeMandelHypnosis.com forward slash academy because we run an online academy to the planet. Yeah, and, and what we'll do is um, we'll put links to, to both of those underneath today's episode for everybody tuning in. And uh, um, um, I think you've got, a, you've got a Facebook page and some other stuff as well that we'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put the links in there. <laughs> and um, um, Mike has a, has a podcast of his own, which, um, which I find um, invigorating, I must oh, say. Um, um, I find it invigorating. I like um, um, one of the things that really drew me um, in your direction was was the kind of energy and enthusiasm. I, I think it's quite quite a common theme within a lot of the people that 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 really thrive in this field that they quite clearly love it. And um, you know, if 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 you want more hypnosis podcasts, I think that's one to go and go and listen to for sure. Brain software, that's right. Thank yeah, you, Adam. That's yeah. Um, um, Mike, we th- thank you for for this, and uh, we'll be back with you in a short while. I really enjoyed that interview. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. This week I'm covering just two stories because I want to cover uh, one in some depth in particular. Now, the Daily Mail here in the UK and a number of other newspapers have covered the story that carries the headline, Hypnosis Helps Breast Cancer Patients. It's a story that's based upon research findings published publicly this week that suggests hypnosis helps women recover more quickly from debilitating breast cancer surgery. Now, it's not the first study of this kind, and it actually supports previous findings from other studies. But I wanted to mention this because it is such a wonderful application of hypnosis. Some of the way the methodology is described by the tabloid is riddled with misconception and the proliferation of nonsense and chronically irritating cliched terminology. But heck, it's a season of goodwill currently, right? So I shall not spend too much time pulling that apart or highlighting that stuff this week. What delighted me was another reference as well to a, to a hospital in Brussels that employs hypnosis with a fifth of the women who undergo breast cancer surgery. And they also championed the way hypnosis alleviates many side effects for many women who undergo chemotherapy or radiotherapy as part of their cancer treatment. A suggestion is made by the lead researcher, Dr. Martine Berlier, that future research may even show that hypnosis could prevent cancer remission, which is a big claim, but an incredibly positive one for us, you know, filled with expectation. To think that hypnosis can function as a major adjunct to ongoing cancer care is simply wonderful for us, isn't it? Now, the second story I want to flag this week is actually a local story over in the US that is likely to be of more initial interest to lawyers or legal eagles. It's entitled, Court Eyes Use of Hypnosis in 79 Missing Boy Case. It's one of many, many such cases that has an ongoing debate in the center of it, in particular in the US, um, where the use of hypnosis as a means of eliciting eyewitness testimony during criminal trials, in this case um, um, a potential murder trial, is today being questioned. No arrests were made in the murder of Eton Pats in 1979, that is not until 2012. The relevance to us, though, is that prosecutors are today arguing that memories that, that emerged via hypnosis back in the 1970s should not be allowed as evidence at the trials that are ongoing today with, 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 with the murder trial that's happening today. And I'll give you a quote. 
we must be careful not to elicit post-hypnosis information from any witness. That's the assistant Manhattan district attorney that said that. However, the lawyer for the man standing trial for the murder says that the fact that a witness underwent hypnosis, and he is quoted as saying, might be relevant to what they're saying at the trial. State Supreme Court Justice Maxwell Wiley has said that he wanted more information about the use of hypnosis in the case before deciding. Sure. Courts throughout the US have grappled for years with regards to what to do about testimony that's drawn out with the use of hypnosis. There has been toing and froing in a variety of courts. The New Jersey Supreme Court decided in 2006, for example, generally to bar what they refer to as hypnotically refreshed testimony from witnesses except defendants which was reversing a 1981 ruling that had set guidelines for allowing such testimony. So let us just get clear on a few things. Hypnosis ought not be used for eyewitness testimony. It should not be used as a forensic tool. Hypnosis does not guarantee veracity of memory. This is the first and probably the most important point to make here. People are quite capable of lying when hypnotized, for example. Secondly, hypnosis does bring more material up when searching for such memories and worryingly leads to an individual believing in the memory more. And you know, that memory may not even be true. They believe in it more though. Studies support this, you know, these are not just opinions of mine. Memory has been shown to be reconstructive, you know, um, time after time, in, you know, with scientific studies. And thus it's, you know, our memory being reconstructive is thus flavoured by our beliefs, our judgments, the opinions that we hold today. And, you know, the, the entire filter of the person that we are today. The long and short of this debate and the conclusion that should be drawn by those making decisions in courts of law is that eyewitness testimony elicited by hypnosis should not be treated any differently than eyewitness testimony elicited without hypnosis. It's certainly no guarantee of truth and accuracy. Hypnosis could be used to help relax individuals and being relaxed may possibly aid memory retrieval or at least calm the mind, focus it and allow it to have less distractions. But hypnosis ought not really be used as a so-called forensic tool. Links to both of these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion then. As I mentioned earlier, and as I think will have become obvious from listening to me interviewing Mike Mandel, is that the sheer depth and breadth of experience that he draws upon. And for that reason, I wanted to explore Dr. Mike's approach and application of hypnosis in general terms. So here is this week's professional discussion with him. So I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Mike Mandel today. Um, Usually I have a very specific or, or quite, a, quite a niche topic to discuss, um, um, but I, I especially today wanted to really talk about Mike's approach in general, his approach, because I find him so, and his approach so multifaceted, I was really interested to explore it and have a discussion about it. Um, Mike, first up then, um, um, Perhaps I could ask you about, I mean, you talked earlier on about artistry and you also talked about um, um, John Grinder being a major influence to you. Now, I know that, for example, John Grinder teaches in stories and uses a lot of metaphor. Um, is that something that features heavily within your own work? I mean, I, I was saying to you earlier on in the, in the interval while we were just having a, a chat off, off, off mic, um, about that, that, you know, you have a very engaging style with the way in which you present and talk and communicate. Um, is that something, you know, it, th does that kind of all feed in together, the storytelling and so on? Absolutely, it does, Adam, because I, I make no differentiation between doing hypnosis professionally and my personal life. It's all the same thing. I mean, I, it, honestly, it is no exaggeration to say I've lived, eaten, and breathed hypnosis full-time for 40 years. It's mm. every day. Uh, but the storytelling 
much of that came from my study with Grinder and with Derek Bomber, the recognition that we can access these wonderful internal states. And of course, we can access resources, we can help people install them. I, I had an event where I spoke to a Chamber of Commerce east of Toronto years ago, and I had some time to kill. I was waiting for a train home. I didn't feel like driving. It was too far. And we were sitting in a pub talking with the organizers, and one of them, her phone rang, and she said, my sister was at the event. She wants to know if you'll talk to her. I said, sure. I've got time. So her sister showed up, and her daughter was going through just a horrific time. And her daughter was, um, she'd gotten mixed up with a guy who'd been arrested for, you know, 20 pounds of cocaine in the roof of his jag. And right. She, she was trying to live a Paris Hilton style life <laughs> in this small town. And the daughter was going to wait for him till he came out of, you know, prison. And all. she said her daughter's life was just a mess. And yeah. her mom was a nervous wreck because of this. And I said, you know, it reminds me of a thing John Grinder told me that in the South American jungle, there's a vine called the liana vine. And it grows up to the tallest trees into the sunlight. But over time, it drops pods and the seeds send down roots into the dark soil and then spring up and begin to grow. But when they do, they do an unusual thing for green plants. They become negatively heliotropic and grow away from the sunlight. And then over mm. time, they come back and find their way back up the tree and back into the sunlight. Now, I told it much more fleshed out than I just did. Yeah. And slowed my speech and built rapport with her. And this woman went into state and she said, wow, sounds like someone's life. I said, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a call from the organizers a few weeks later and they said this woman's stress had entirely disappeared because she got from the metaphor that her daughter was going to go and into the darkness for a while, but was a smart girl was going to find her way back to her family and back into the sunlight. Now, whether or not that occurs, who knows? But the mother was able to stop stressing about her and trying to control a 24-year-old woman who she couldn't control. So that's what I mean about the power of stories, the power mm. of metaphor, the power of intersecting the right person with the right story at the right moment. Like Erickson himself said, you know, you can trust your unconscious mind. And it was Tad James who said, if you can't trust your unconscious mind, whose unconscious mind can you trust? <laughs> <laughs> well, but this, this, you know, um, I mean, you had no idea that, that I was just going to going to sort of speak to you about that and uh, no. about that particular question. Yet, yet, yet you then told a story about telling a story. And right. um, um, so do you think, you know, do you draw upon life experience um, um, within your stories? Are, are they real stuff or do you have a yes. kind of story? supply of them. I do have a stock supply, but they are without a doubt, um, the best ones are from our own life. Not always, but yeah. the best ones are. Erickson always drew from his own life. I remember reading how one therapeutic client saw a paperweight on his desk, this purple elephant or something, made a glass, commented on it, asked where he got it, and his response so perfectly fit her situation, she thought he was lying. Mm. And a couple of years later, met the two women who had given it to him and found out it was entirely true. We, everyone has a story. Everyone has value. Everyone has a depth of experience that under the right circumstances can be drawn upon and given to other people. And if we think about it, hypnosis is simply, if we, if we think of the unconscious processes going on where the imagination and all of the resources available begin to come to the surface and become accessible in a way that enables the person to apply them not only to their own life, but to the given situation that they are in, in a way that is congruent and powerful. And the second freaky thing about it is talking about hypnosis makes it happen anyway. Mm. And the third freaky thing about hypnosis is how easily we can totally forget the first freaky thing now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um. With your own experience, I mean, people go and explore your work, and and they'll see, you know, you've got a you've got levels of expertise with with all range of other stuff as well as hypnosis um, to draw upon and so on. Um, um, you know, do you think it's important to 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 go out and have rich and varied life experience in order oh, gosh, to draw yes. upon it? Absolutely, you know, and my wife and I are culture vultures, so we we go to a lot of art galleries and opera and live theater and I read literature and poetry and the thing that has changed my life Adam and it's no exaggeration hmm. is it is I think it's almost either seven or eight years ago we cut our cable for our television no antenna got rid of the cable for a 30 day experiment and we oh, yeah. never, tur never turned it back on <laughs> oh wow great life, life has slowed down we cook more we talk more we have better conversations we walk more we exercise more 
we're more involved in things of depth and substance rather than the blasting images overstimulating the visual cortex and having a life of, of depth instead of superficiality. My Lovely. wife said we were in danger of becoming deeply superficial. So I think it's <laughs> important to fill our unconscious minds with a vast array of resources. I used to hypnotize people who were going through various problems and send them to the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, which is quite a good one, mm. and tell them they were going to find the answer in there. And I never had a case where they didn't. Never. Mm. It's out of about <laughs> eight times. Oh, I walked in and I saw this statue of, you know, this, and I went, that's the thing, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> we need yeah. to put put those things in our unconscious to draw from. Mm. And I mean, one of the one of the big or one of the um, impressive uh, experiences that, that you have that I'm guessing you can draw upon is is the, the, the stage hypnosis experience and and performance element of hypnosis that you've used and incorporated and and so on. Tell me, um, Mike, is it? Are there elements of that that you are able to incorporate into the, the, your therapy work or your, your, your consulting rooms, for example? And if so, what? It all overlaps. To mm. me, Adam, it, 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 none of it's any different from any, any other part. Mm. It's because if I'm thinking of hypnosis in terms of being um, extremely powerful communication, right, then, yes. uh, what the stage shows did for me was gave me confidence. It gave me congruence and confidence. Yes. And if I had not had that foundation on stage and working with difficult audiences and so on, I wouldn't have been a very confident person because I was a, a tiny kid, uh, bullied incessantly, and had one teacher in grade five who almost gave me a nervous breakdown. Mm. And I, it was once I learned hypnosis and got on stage, it forced me to travel alone and take flights and check into hotels and do all of these things, and it forced me to be more independent. So it was really the stage, it created a persona, the stage presence. Mm. that then became indistinguishable from who I actually am. Yeah. So the, the stage person became the real me, I guess. But then going backwards with it, I, I don't do many hypnosis shows anymore. I have one for a corporation this week, and I have my last one of the year next week. But um, I, work, I do work in the stuff. I'll work in embedded commands. I'll work in yes sets and compliance sets and all the same things I do in therapy. Mm. And that's why I'll typically have a pretty high kill ratio with the people I'm working with on stage. Hmm. It's all sort of the same, you know, police training. When, when, when they bring me in to work with the Ontario Provincial Police or RCMP or Virginia Department of Criminal Justice, I'm bringing in hypnotic techniques that to me are like breathing because I'm doing them all the time. Yeah. But it's new to them. And we just got one of my students is a deputy sheriff in Louisiana, and he studied with me just uh, the architecture of hypnosis just last month, yeah. so in the beginning of November. And he's emailed back, and he's used one of the techniques I taught, which is called, called the left eye technique. Mm. which was taught to me by a policeman who learned it from a criminal. And it's a way of intersecting people <laughs> in a bad way that completely causes them to back down. And yeah. he used this to quell a riot in a, a lockup at a police station. Wow. And he's just, he's just over the moon because yeah. there's an application of this. It's completely um, applicable in our daily worlds. Yeah, 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 I love that. Um, um, and so, I mean, we've spoken a bit um, um, earlier and... and you know, I, I think when we look at the people that have sort of influenced your own approach to therapy, um, um, there's there's some some pioneers of the the neurolinguistic programming and um, and, and Ericksonian work. Um, um, are, are they at the core of your approach as far as um, therapeutic work is concerned? Only in this. I mean, I still do. <sighs> I'll do the same stuff. I'll draw from Estabrooks and Elman and Gil yeah. Boyne and all the super direct people as well. Mm. Um, I don't really differentiate. I sort of see it on a continuum rather than direct or indirect. So mm. with the continuum, my approach is as indirect or let's say as maternal as possible and as direct as necessary. Mm. So I sort of gauge it at the time, including what sort of induction I'm going to use, if I'm going to use an induction at all, or if I'm just going to walk them across into trance without them noticing. Yeah. But I'm always leaning towards a communicative model primarily, although I will bring out the sledgehammer and the PGO spikes if necessary. <laughs> uh, and and I mean, on your website as well, it says, for example, that you, um, you also 
engage with uh, you know a number of other psychotherapeutic disciplines. Um, right. Can you can you give us an idea of some of that? Any uh, the kind of other approaches that you that you draw upon that you use well, within your work? Certainly the NLP, the classical NLP, and then John yeah. Grinder's New Code NLP. I'm a trainer in NLP. Um, yeah. It took me two years to get a trainer's certificate. I mean, it was very, very thorough. And that was after being a master practitioner and practitioner and so on. Yeah. Uh, the two year was just a trainer course. Be set free fast. Larry Nims trained with him. Um, I use a wide variety of EFT formulas, including mm. experimenting with positive EFT out of Britain lately and getting great results. Mm. Um, whatever the situation really requires, I mean, some of it would probably constitute CBT. You know, mm. it really depends on what's in front of <coughs> me. Um, I like working with mindscaping, which is a protocol I developed a couple of years ago, and we've started teaching it as part of our master hypnosis course, and also we do it as a full weekend training in Toronto and bring in therapists and so on. Mm. And mindscaping was a discovery I made that sprung into my conscious awareness one morning, almost fully formed. And when I tested it and revised it, and I taught it to three phenomenal female therapists in Toronto and let them use to loose to find out how well it worked for them. And the results have been astounding, tuning up immune systems, getting rid of, you know, anxieties that have been there for years, depotentiating all sorts of problems. Yeah. So mindscaping has become a huge part of it. Now we're getting emails from Holland and all over the world saying, oh, can wow. we put it out as a product? Sure. And so, and so does it have a relationship? Does it have a relationship with hypnosis? Yes, does it have it absolutely, some... absolutely does. And it's it's basically a way of dis determining what the internal map is for any given circumstance. So if the person has um, a meeting coming up with their boss tomorrow mm. and they're nervous about it, I can elicit the mindscape just for that event and their unconscious mind will offer it fully formed and freak them out mm. and which we can then adjust the map and then their behavior changes or I can elicit one or someone trained and can elicit a mindscape purely for the person's health or their immune system. It can be that specific and it's set up with the metaphor of if I was going to New York for the first time and never been there, wanted to go to some theater, see some museums, whatever, I would need a map. Yeah. But I wouldn't need one that showed the rainfall patterns and the sewer grid and you know the electrical pattern. I just need one that showed me where these elements were. Yeah. And that pre-frames and the unconscious goes, oh, I know the map you mean. <laughs> <laughs> then we're able to get it and make these changes with it. So that's been... It's been one of the most astounding things. I, I honestly, Adam, I really, nothing makes me happier than when I see students replicate excellence. When I get emails yeah. from around the world and see people's lives are changing as a result of something that I taught them or showed them and they taught someone else. And I think that's the best. I said on my own podcast, and I don't mean to be macabre, but people don't tend to have a lot of longevity on either side of my family. Mm. And my mom and dad both died young. I'm coming up to 62. And I'm old age in my family. And my business partner, Chris, a few years ago said, you have got to get this stuff out there before you leave this planet. So I said, <laughs> okay. And that's why we started the podcast and everything and just jumped in and started teaching people and running the training. So the problem we're running into is I refuse to do enormous trainings. We like the number to be classroom size. Yeah. So our trainings in Toronto sell out six, seven months in advance now. Yeah. So it's, what do you do? Wow. Yeah, great. Um, um, Mike, one of the things I think, um, if anybody goes and explores your work that hasn't done already, um, and one of the things I think stands out is is your humour. You have a, you have a really enjoyable sense of humour. And... That's John Grinder. That's not me. Humour blocks <laughs> the model. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, t tell me about that. Is there a place for that within your therapy room? And if so, how do you apply it? And you know, I. For, for me, I think when people enjoy trainings, when people smile and um, and laugh during trainings, you know, it, it makes information so much more accessible and it makes, you know, the, the overall experience such a more a stimulating one. Um, um, just tell me yeah. about about your approach with that, you know, um, how you how you choose it and how you, you know how it goes. Or is it just all instinctive? A lot of it's um, just off the cuff at the time. But of course, I do have metaphors I'm using throughout the course, some of them are actually funny, to keep people in a state of curiosity and uh, learning, a learning state. And if we look at it in terms of ego state theory, as soon as we get people laughing and having fun, we have a different ego state has moved into the executive. And mm. that one is not going to be some heavy, critical one. It's going to be one that's going to be more childlike and more open to things. And it was Richard Bandler said that he joked with his clients about their problems all the time. And I said, I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> I really like that. 
And when it gets somebody come in with, I had one, one client came in and you know, she had five open heart surgeries, five, and finally settling on these aortic valves, and she was on two blood thinners, and and she said, I'm anxious all the time, and I said, I said that's fantastic. And she went, what? I said, it's hard to be anxious all the time. I mean, that, that's an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. And she's, oh, I guess it is. You know, we start joking about it. And then she starts to relax and open up. And I think humor has a tremendous place. I mean, seriously, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. You know, no, I, I absolutely. really believe that. It's got to be fun. It was Confucius who said, you know, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Of course, the corollary to that is do what you hate and you can make your life work. So there's ambiguity <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, there really is. Um, I, I, you know, it, it's um, it, it's been a personal philosophy of, of my own. I, you know, if heck, if you're going to work as a, as a therapist, for example, you're going to be sat in a, a relatively small room with you know one-to-one -one with people that are ill depressed anxious and so on you know and and if that is without joy and humor you know that's that's going to weigh pretty heavy on you and and you know absolutely you, you're not going to be able to, to to persist with that i don't think um no so, i think so, that's why we get so much therapy therapist burnout yeah because people Derek Bomber said that people are entering into second position with them so they're going into an empathy state which is why a lot of people are therapists to begin with I'm a huge empath yeah but I've learned to disengage because if I don't disengage I'm carrying that bad state home with me yeah right absolutely um, um but, but I think the humor and the, the you know appropriate use of humor um, mm -hmm. um is is you know is something that really really helps with that and and it makes it absolutely as you say an enjoyable experience even a healthy healing experience for ourselves as a result yes. you know sharing some laughter sharing some joy with another human being um it was a lovely thing to do i think i, I totally agree adam dorothy parker the great writer said uh, life is bad enough without being bloody miserable on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. But I know what you mean. There's those times when we can intersect a client and somebody can come in in a really bad, unresourceful state. And when they leave, just transformed. I had one last week. I had a woman who we cleared up 15 years of problems in one session where she was actually convulsing and couldn't control it. Mm. And by regressing her and finding the ego state that was vaded and it was three different ones age six age three and then infantile prior prior to being able to speak and whatever the model of the world that was hers right so i honor her model of the world and we abreact and depotentiate all this she came back and i always when i work with a woman i always ensure she either has a family member present or another female she trusts because i believe we have to be not only above board but seen to be above board Mm. especially when we're dealing with things that are so powerful and the other woman her friend and I looked at, at her when she came out of it and this woman was glowing I have never seen such a transformation she looked 10 to 12 years younger it was insane how much different she looked mm. and I leave a session like that and I'm just on fire I feel fantastic I yeah. benefited from it therapeutically too yeah and there was a lot of humor in that as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um I've got to ask you, I've got to ask you, um, um, this is less about your approach. Um, um, you know, you, you, you've made some references and I've read, um, you know, about some of the clients that you've worked with. Um, you know, people like, you know, you, you, you've worked with um, um, Defense defense Unit and, and Microsoft and, and other really big organizations. Yeah. Um, you know, do they employ you with the word hypnosis ever used or is it something else because um you know i have found that hypnosis has a has a, you know a, a, a perception very often and um, um so you know is it with hypnosis in mind and and you, you somehow you somehow <laughs> you some you somehow transcend that or or are you framing it in a completely different way in a different context but still using hypnosis within it it is the second. I'm framing it in a different context. I'm mm. framing it as I'm teaching them extremely powerful communication techniques. Right. And so um, once they're in the training room, whether I'm doing a one-hour keynote or a three-hour or, or two days like I did for Neil Strauss, whatever it is, mm. then I can begin to talk about how all communication is in and of itself hypnotic to some degree insofar as it's causing us to turn our attention inward. And we're back into downtime from NLP. So we're 
experiencing. I, I give the example, we'd go to our family cottage when I was a kid and it was on the yeah. Trent River and we'd have to go across and be sleet. My mom and dad loved going when it was rainy and we'd get the oil stove going and the smell of the oil and the cottage would gradually warm up. Now, everybody's creating a different internal experience there, none of which yeah. is my actual cottage. <laughs> but the point of it is it's, that's the hypnotic aspect. I'm explaining to them that my words are causing you to internalize and make this experience happen, make yeah. it real for you. And then when they start to see hypnosis in those terms, as opposed to you're getting sleep, you're getting tired, they're very, very open to learning the techniques. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the police especially, because they love to have new ways of shutting down conflict. Doing police training, words should always be the force option we go to. You know, if if at all possible, yeah. we go to words, and then you know, wrist locks and arm locks and pepper spray and tasers and lethal force. Alas, but the danger is with the novice, is they tend to escalate too quickly. They're afraid they're not going to get to go to the nuclear weapon, so they go there right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's better to keep it down to words. So yes, they're bringing me in as a communications expert. When I was on CBC television for two years as the relationship guy, it was yeah. just all sane communication techniques. That's all. Hypnosis was never mentioned. Mm, mm, fascinating, fascinating. Um, um, I'll echo my earlier sentiments. I could just talk and talk and talk um, with you, Mike. Um, um, but we're out of time. We're out of time. I'll have to get you on another time as well and see if we can twist your arm to get you to come back at a future Love date. To come back at a um, time. Um, thank you so much. Um, thank you for your generosity of information. Thank you for your enthusiasm and your contribution to this field and everything else. Um, um, uh, it's absolutely lovely having you on Hypnosis Weekly. My thanks. Dr. Mike Mandel. A pleasure being here, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Some fascinating information there. A link to Dr. Mike Mandel's website is there at the Hypnosis Weekly website uh, under this episode. On to this week's hypnosis fact. Um, Graham Wagstaff applied the Occam's razor theory to hypnosis. Now that's our factoid. Let me explain that. Indeed, the 14th century English philosopher William Occam used a principle that, and I quote, entities are not to be multiplied without necessity. Now, explained in simple terms, suppose there exist two explanations for an occurrence. Occam's theory suggests the simpler one is usually better. Another way of saying it is that the more assumptions you have to make, the more unlikely an explanation is. The vast majority of us, for example, tends to doubt the existence of elves and fairies. Despite my children's efforts to convince me of the truth behind one of their favourite cartoons, Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom. Our doubt that elves and fairies exist is not based upon science. You know, science has not conclusively proven that elves and fairies do not exist. At least I can find no such study. We have made certain assumptions that elves and fairies do not exist as literal entities, regardless of their existence in books and cartoons. The assumptions we have to make about them actually existing are far more numerous and complex. Wagstaff then applied the Occam's razor notion to hypnosis and he stated this in his work and I quote, there is little point in holding on to the traditional idea that there exists a particular brain state or an altered state of consciousness we can label hypnosis, which is somehow important in accounting for the phenomena we call hypnotic. Moreover, although science has not proved and can prove that no such and can never prove that no such state exists, I would nevertheless consider the concept of hypnotic state to be an unnecessary and misleading anachronism, left over mainly from 19th century paradigms that has long outlived their usefulness. Now, I could explore this notion for hours, but heck, we all have Christmas celebrations to go and attend soon, don't we? This week, there are no reminders about our ongoing com competition because there is no ongoing competition. The competition has been won. Many, many of you noticed that in last week's edition, during our fourth minute, I used the word snazzy just before the English sisters interview. Uh, Mr. Richard Ingate was the first to send the correct answer and he was closely followed by some of you emailing me, some of you tweeting me, some of you commenting on the Hypnosis Weekly website 
and some of you mentioning it on Facebook. Richard will be invited to attend any of the courses that I run here at my college, our diploma course, our cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy training for hypnotherapists, as well as rapid induction, science of self-hypnosis, and hypnosis for running seminars that I run. Heck, he can come to all of them if he wants, or if he can stand that amount of exposure to me. Congratulations, Richard. I look forward to seeing you in class. We'll run another competition of some kind next year. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming Terence Watts. I interview him and we'll be examining his latest pioneering approach to therapy. I have many more exciting guests that we'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in the future too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with the related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and help us reach more of the hypnosis field. My thanks go to Dr. Mike Mandel and thanks to you for tuning in. Not just this week, but throughout this past year, the support and feedback I continue to receive about this podcast from you fellow hypnosis lovers has been incredibly positive. I wish you and your families a fabulous festive season and I really look forward to pleasing your inner hypnosis geek some more next year. My name is Adam Eason, this has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now.